Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about blood relationships, blood relations, uh, tribal tribal mentality. And we'll be going over this essay, um, Lectures on Religion of the Semites by uh, William Robertson Smith. And I got uh, John Fisher, our, our resident PhD, to talk to us about these uh, tribal concerns. You want to say anything, uh, John? I'm going to put you uh, on the spot. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, this is a very interesting lecture because I was like, it's it seems like something that I've thought about a little bit, just like barely. And this is a very in-depth way of looking at that. So it's helpful. I'm glad to have read it. Yeah, so <laughs> uh, let me uh, share a quick biblical search on the word blood. Blood, blood has, uh, has a very specific meaning in the Bible and specific ideas around it. Like the blood is the life force. The blood, blood gives something vitality. And so uh, I wasn't ready to share this screen, but uh, here we go. We'll, we'll share this screen here and uh, search blood. And I'm sure you've seen biblical references to the word blood before. So you got, uh, for example, Genesis 9-4, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is the blood. Blood's associated with life here. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed, for God made man in his own image. And as we might be discussing today, maybe image has to do with that blood. Maybe God and man share some sort of lifeblood, or at least there's ancient conceptions of the sort where ancient semi peoples would identify themselves and their blood and their kin and the blood of the god as one family you sh you share bloods so you got blood oaths uh you have blood crying out uh the cain kills abel and guess what his blood cries out what does that mean exactly does it have something to do with inner re tribal relationships and shared identity so a lot of good questions like that. So what are your initial, I'm sure you've looked at uh, blood in the Bible before. What are your initial, what's your initial understanding of what blood means within the Bible? I, it, it's funny because it has many meanings. It's, it's, it talks about your relation, your kinship with someone. It talks about what gives you life. It talks about what atones. Blood atonement means that, you know, you're shedding blood as a way of, purifying something or cleansing something right so in uh, a further lecture not this lecture but um in his lecture series two william robertson smith talks about blood atonement and his understanding of the most primitive form of blood atonement was the idea is that you the, the shedding of blood the, the spreading of blood re um re, uh, reclaims you into this blood brotherhood it uh, it uh, it mitigates past sins or past past actions that might have separated you from the clan but the shedding of blood reintegrates you in the into the clan without those previous deeds held against you and so that that seems to be his understanding of the original intent of blood atonement Very well could be the case, as we're going to kind of be reading today about his uh, perception of these 
these ideas. So we're going to be talking about, this is lecture two, the nature of the religious community, the relation of the gods to their worshipers. And uh, I basically just highlighted the entire lecture. <laughs> I mean, like, it's difficult to highlight any one thing. If you read the whole thing and it's like 50 pages long for, for the just the lecture too, it, uh, it goes over many different topics and it kind of sort of flows from one to the other. And so, it, like, the whole thing reads as though you have one of those um, very verbose pastors standing up at a pulpit who just starts talking, and then two hours later, three hours later, he's done, right? And, like, it, it's, not, it's not some treatise that's trying to prove something so much as, like, a person of authority telling you what he knows. And um, he, comes, he, he begins by talking about... Um, sort of like the tribal relationships to, to their God and to and how that would bind them together as a community. And he ties it in in the end with, with Christianity and the Christian conception. And so it, even though he kind of moves around a bit, he, he, come, he makes full circle at the very end of his lecture. So it's an interesting thing to read. Yeah, so we'll, we'll just kind of read through this uh, opening paragraph. Uh, it'll be interesting. We have seen that ancient faiths must be looked at as matters of institution rather than dogma or formulated belief. And what he means by this is you're born into a society and you're born into a religion. You're born into these rites. It's not like America where it's like, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, I want to be an astronaut. Oh, I want to be a Muslim. Oh, I want to be an atheist. Oh, I'm going to just choose between atheism and, and Islam and uh, Christianity. And you just kind of pick the thing and, and then you could be part of that uh, religion. No, uh, it didn't work like that in ancient societies. Their religious ritual was integrated into their societal life, that they're inseparable. You're born into uh, association with Yahweh. That's where you lived, and that's where you identified. That's what rites you performed. It wasn't. It wasn't like an optional thing. You had to perform according to the community standards. Now, it's, atheism is not an option. It's not like something you could pick. Oh, I choose not to believe. No, it's it's integrated in society in a way that's not separated. And so you see instances in the Bible of, uh, let's say, Ruth where she integrates herself into the cult, we'll say cult, the cult of Yahweh, as she associates with the rites, she associates with the people, and she is grafted into this broader community. Uh, associating with a God is associating with a community. They're inseparable. You don't, you don't integrate yourself into the community and bring foreign gods because then you're not actually integrated into that society. Yeah, and this is this is the big thing to point out about primitive societies, and he says this in his lecture uh, that it's not like everyone started with polytheism and then you move on to monotheism and then you like make the greatest possible god ever from monotheism. Everyone started with essentially, it's not really monotheism so much as here is like the the god of your city or your settlement, and then people might have other gods because those are the defining things of those, their settlements. But your God is the only God that you care about. Your God is the one that you pray to and and serve. And so it's it's not really it's not meant to be polytheism in the sense that there's 
like a million gods out there and they're all warring separately. No, your god is your community and your community is tied together by that. And so all your rituals are tied together by that. You have a singular thing that identifies you. And if you leave that thing, you also leave your community, which is why with, with the Ruth example is she has to forsake her god. If she forsakes her god, she's also forsaking her family. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, when the clans go to war against each other, it's not only the people that are warring, that the different deities are warring against each other as well. And so you have the case of Moab in the Bible, where the Yahweh Israelites attack the land of Moab, destroy everything. Uh, they get really uh, worried, and the king sacrifices his son on the walls, and there's a great wrath that comes against Israel. So they reached out to their god, for some sort of counterattack, because the gods were very much involved in the war with the cults against each other. There, there's divine warfare in the Bible. So it says, <clears throat> and that the system of the antique religion was part of the social order under which its adherents lived. So that the word system here must be taken in a practical sense. As when we speak of a political system, and not in the sense of an organized body of ideas or theological opinions. Now, this is actually very important. Um, I got a cat that's going crazy behind me. But uh, this is an important concept that they didn't have like dogma. They didn't have like uh, creeds, uh, apostolic creeds about um, the nature of divinity or anything like that. Oh, you have to say this creed three times or something. No, um, all that stuff is secondary. That This is not about dogma. This is not about... A specific theological tenets. It's, it's just part of their lifeblood community. We worship Yahweh. Who's Yahweh? Yahweh's our God. He's our protector. He's more powerful than us. He will help us in our time of need. That's who he is. It's not about metaphysical propositions. It's not about adherence to specific theological tenets. That's not what religion is. Religion is adherence to cultic ritual shared cultic ritual in in a community setting it, it's probably worth noting that that kind of happens today anyway most people at church are not going to church to make theological propositions about god they they go there as part of their community engage in the rituals because it, it is their social connection to their community they they believe certain things about god but they but mostly they believe god is a powerful being who uh, will act through, if you in, use prayer, he will act to, to benefit you. And you worship him as part of who you are because part of who you are as a community is a Christian who gets together and worships God. So even, even modern times, it kind of works the same way. It is, a, it is a sense of identity for the community as a whole more so than it is some propositional statements that people gather together to to verify. Yeah, so uh, we got some comments. Uh, Ravisari says that it seems to be Old Testament symbols. We share God's breath, not blood. I'll last initially. I'm not sure exactly uh, what he's saying. While ancient rules with divine blood was more of a byproduct if demigod Nephilim myths saying their divine is a pagan claim to pagan divinity. 
Yeah. So in the Bible, you have the animating of the human spirit through breath, but you do have blood sacrifices. And so the blood sacrifice had to deal with lifeblood of animals. And he will argue in this lecture or a different lecture that even the animals that which were part of any specific community, their lifeblood was also considered part of that community. And so in that way, those types of blood sacrifices would work as reacclimation or re re-upping re or re reconfirming this this kinship between the deity and the people so that's his idea all right see it says broadly speaking religion was made up of a series of acts and observances the correct performance of which was necessary or desirable to secure the favor of the gods to avert their anger and in these observances so he's talking about all semitic societies in general so not just israel He's talking about, uh, you know, like the ancient Assyrian types and the Babylonian types, all the Semitic peoples. So the, these are common elements. And he'll often in these lectures say, well, Israel was a little different in this way. Or, or he'll make nuanced observations about differences in different uh, theological histories. All right. We've got um, someone I could try to ban over here. He says, correct performance of which was necessary or desirable to secure the favor of the gods or avert their anger. And in these observances, every member of society had a share marked out for him, either in virtue of his being born within a certain family and community or in virtue of the station within the family and community that he had come to hold in the course of his life. A man did not choose his religion or frame it himself. It came to him as part of the general scheme of social obligations and ordinances laid upon them as a matter of course by his position in the family and in the nation. So that's one thing you'll see also in the Bible is you don't have wars of of conversion. It's not it's never like let's convert the heathen to Yahwehism. It's never let let's go tell them about the true God and then uh, you know there's there's no jihads. There's there's no holy wars for the sake of people's souls. Yeah, they you have inner contests. So whose God is greater? That's the question. Not not whose God is is like who who should be the only God anyone ever worships. They obviously say Yahweh is the one true God. Yes, but they're not trying to convert him. They're just trying to demonstrate he's the true God through his strength. And and Paul basically acknowledges this in the New Testament, which which he has a quote about at past times God winked at. Uh, at the unbelief of these pagan nations, them worshiping other gods, but now he's calling all men to repent. I'll find that direct reference. It's in Acts. Acts 1730. So it, it's not like this is uh foreign to them, this idea that different nations have their different deities and it's okay to worship them. Paul reverses this. Paul has a ministry to the Gentiles, trying to convert Gentiles to Yahwehism, basically. Paul writes, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now in the New Testament, now it's a global religion. Now in the New Testament, he's trying to bring everyone in. Before that, there wasn't this, this outreach. There wasn't this uh, concerted effort to convert the heathen.
let's see. Individual men were born more or less religious as men now and more or less patriotic. That is, they discharged their religious duties with greater or less degree of zeal according to their character and temperament, but there was no such thing as absolutely irreligious man. So in the Bible, atheism is not the denial of God. It's the denial of God's efficacy, God's ability and willpower to control or intervene in our, our life. It's the denial that Yahweh is active within the community. That's their atheism. It's a practical atheism. It's not like denial that gods exist, if that makes sense. I mean, it wouldn't even matter because which, what they care about is whether God is working within people, right? Yeah. Is, is Yahweh relevant to our community at large mm -hmm. is the primary question. It says a certain amount of religion was required by everyone for the due performance of religious acts was a special obligation in which everyone had his appointed share. That That's another thing about these communities is that everyone needs to participate and people who aren't participating, they could imperil the community at large by their inability to act. Like, <clears throat> like for example, in, in tribal warfare, one person's oath would count for everyone else's oath. And one person's murder would be a murder against the entire tribe. They had a more communal idea of how societies functioned. One person stood for the whole. And we see this in the Bible reoccurring with different types of corporate punishment. One individual makes a mistake. The whole community is punished. The whole community has to suffer for the actions of one person. It's because the people weren't separate individuals. They were part of the whole. They stood for the whole. Their actions counted for the whole, and the whole stood for the individual. Yeah. People just, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't this individualistic thing that we have now where every single person is themselves a unique actor and responsible for their own actions. It's just not how it worked. Yes. So the reason I think this is interesting, and it might actually have relation to questions about modern day atheism, um, it seems like these communities could not actually function as a community without having a central focused purpose. And so they would use these, these gods that define the community as the thing that unifies and binds them all together as a singular people. I think like you don't see really examples of communities that don't do this and it probably is because people will just naturally separate they'll break apart they, they don't have a shared identity anymore and so they they, they start miss somehow they their society doesn't function and they're easy prey for other societies who do function at that point again so like this might be relevant to modern day atheism because atheism strips people's identities away their ability to form communal bonds with other people um and and we're we're kind of seeing that now is that a lot of these people become these atomized forces who, who can't really even socialize with other people like the, the neckbeard atheist is a trope for a reason these these gods served an important function in their community. They were not useless, even if they're not the true God. Right. And it's not like uh, they went around denying that those other gods exist. Those gods exist, but they might not have power. They might not be the ultimate God. There, There's 
there's contests to see whose God is more powerful, right? Within the Bible, you got the priests of Baal cutting themselves, actually bloodletting. We're talking about blood and how blood is the life force. These prophets of Baal believe that their blood sacrifices, it's, it's not like killing someone, it's, it's cutting your skin and then letting the blood drip down, maybe drip into the earth. A lot of times these sacrifices were considered that the deities would be consuming those types. So you'd have drink offerings that you'd pour on the ground also. And the idea was that the deity is consuming those drink offerings. So the deity is consuming their blood. It's their blood offering. And yet um, they don't get answered in that time in the Bible. So, (laughs) yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. I'm saying this is an important part that you have highlighted. Go ahead and Right. The relation between the gods of antiquity in their worshipers was expressed in the language of a human relationship. And this language was not taken in a figurative sense, but a strict literality. If God was spoken of as father and his worshipers as his offspring, the meaning was that the worshipers were literally of his stock, that he and they made up one natural family with reciprocal family duties to one another. So what are your thoughts there? Uh, so he, he he talks about this multiple times in the essay, but like the, the concept of a society is that they are sons and daughters of said God. And, and, and what he means is not, not that any individual is the son and daughter, but as a community, they are the sons and, and daughters of the God. Like as a group, as a whole, this is their defining feature as a community. He, he says it very specifically that I don't remember where it is because I haven't highlighted anything, but he says that it, it there's no way that you can individually call yourself a son of God, but as a as a group you would. And what makes this interesting, um, if, if this is absolutely the, the true way to understand how Semitic people thought of themselves, it, it makes certain verses in the Bible in, uh, curious. Like the one that everyone seems to look at it and, and a little bit weird and not really understand what's going on, is the one in Genesis where it says the sons of men, uh, you know, found that the sons of God found the daughters of men. I think that's the verse. If this is talking about really just sort of the relationship of people with their tribe, what it's really saying is that the people who are part of God's tribe are intermarrying with groups outside of their tribe. And that, that the, the great crime is that they're, they're leaving their tribe and finding women somewhere else. It's not some sort of metaphor, metaphysical thing of angels and demons doing things, for example. So it I would got be pulled a very up. Common term, sons of God, would, would mean the children of Israel or whoever their local God is. Yeah. So when you got the sons of God coming to Yahweh and Job, I don't think these are men in Job. I think these are like uh, angel creatures, some sort of divine creatures that are gathered together. But uh, God throughout the Bible has all sorts of titles, we'll say, a father, king. And one thing we see in the book of Judges is one of the continual reframes is there's no king in Israel. If, if you read uh, Samuel, uh, basically Samuel, the establishment of a Israel-like kingship is a rejection of God's kingship. And so Judges is basically saying they don't even consider God their king. They're rejecting God as king. It seems to be the meaning. 
And so when then they establish an actual kingship, that's really a rejection of God's kingship. So, yeah, that's one thing we need to consider always when we're looking at um, similes or metaphors or metaphorical language or idiomatic speech within the Bible. We, ha we have to always have in the back of our mind, maybe we have to just consider that they literally meant the things that they're saying. And Michael Fishbane's big on this in his book, in which he talks about maybe the Israelites when they talk about God killing Rahab, the sea monster, they're literally, that's literally what they believe. It's, it's not polemical. It's not trying to subvert a Baal legend. Maybe that's literally what that they believe as part of God's past deeds, killing the sea monster. So I'm scrolling down, but, see what else we got well, here. Well, well, so let me just ask you with that example, to what extent do they, consider that if they themselves do something as a as a tribe they often say that god was with them and did it right so it's saying something like god killed the sea monster could also in include them being the agents who are doing the action right it could be it depends what imagery they're drawing on if they're drawing on a primordial image where there's an epic uh deity fight before mankind existed that then they wouldn't be of course be actors so that's that's a, a lot of a lot of the mythos that we see in ancient religions has all these interactions between non-human actor actors before humans come on the scene mm -hmm. and it could be drawing on some sort of idea like that so uh, he does talk a little bit about the greeks i have this highlighted if the homeric poems were the bible of the greeks as so often has been said, and that's absolutely true. Uh, the Greeks treated Homer as their Bible. They would always source Homer. They'll grab lines out of context and make completely unrelated points. You see this throughout their literature. You and then uh, all of the ancient world, to be honest. Yeah, it's it's like, I no, I don't think Homer was after those ideas. And then you have like the Neoplatonists writing books like, oh, when it says Apollo smote the city, they're actually talking about the sun and they're actually just talking about plagues. And because, you know, all these other deities don't exist. We've got the Neoplatonistic model of the world where, uh, you know, so they all treated Homeric poems like the Bible with the same irreverence that modern Christians treat the Bible. It's just like pliable to make whatever point that you, you want in the moment. So, Rav Seri says, uh, yeah, according to Jewish lore, it's angels, not intertribal sex, especially because God didn't divide the tribes and forbid intermarriage. All right. So <clears throat> with that being said, the true meaning of this phrase is that these poems utterance was given to ideas about the gods, which broke through the limitations of local and tribal worship and held forth to all Greeks a certain common stock of religious ideas and motives not hampered by the exclusiveness which in earlier stages of society allows of no fellowship in religion <clears throat> that is not also a fellowship in the interests of a single kin or single political group. So one of his contentions here is that as religion became more cosmopolitan, as um, pantheons were able to expand, this allowed uh, more tribes to collectivize 
and become greater societies because now you could have like Zeus worshipers and Athena worshipers and their religions don't conflict because those, those gods could be allied and they themselves could keep their local practices. You don't see Israel doing this. You don't see Yahweh incorporating sub deities into some sort yeah. of pantheon. And so it never was as cosmopolitan as, as some of these other religions, right? So yeah, some of these. Yeah. So, so this is the natural thing. If every local polity has their own god, then then the only way to bind those groups together is to create some sort of pantheon. This happens. This is India, like writ large. All of India has like what, how many thousands or even millions of gods because every local township has their own god, and the way that they get along is they just say, "Oh, okay, well you got yours, I got mine, and we, we all have all these main ones." And then like there's some there's some very large ones that they all sort of have a common tradition for, but that's how they bind themselves together through, through this massive pantheism. Israel like steadfastly rejected polytheism. All right. <clears throat> Absolutely. Like uh, Greek and the, the Greeks and the Romans, they're like, well, Jupiter, he's kind of like, uh, you know, Zeus. So um, yeah, they'll be the same one, you know? And so they do this overlap where the gods don't quite line up, but you could just, if you force them hard enough, then they could be the same. Uh, I found this line interesting, which is absolutely true. And we see this uh, throughout the historical records whenever dealing with even Christianity. But in Greece, as well as in Rome, the ordinary, traditional, workaday religion of the masses never greatly departed from the primitive type. And so what he's saying there is, Guess what? Like, uh, there were riots in Christian Africa over a bishop saying that God didn't have a body. They went to his his cathedral, threw him out, and they were going to, like, kill him. And he had to be he's like, oh, no, I didn't really quite mean that. Sure, God has a body. You know, <laughs> he's, he's like, like, like uh, I definitely didn't uh, take the Orthodox, uh, what's it now, uh, the what what's now a normal religious stance i i certainly didn't take that mm -hmm. but normal people they've never conceived of the deities in this philosophical sense that you might have the more cultured writers writing about like justin martyr's christianity was not common christianity clement of alexandria his christianity is not the normal workaday religious uh sentiment they, they don't conceive of God in the same way. They've always conceived of God as uh, an agent who's bigger than us, more powerful than us, can be called upon to help us, cares about us, and interacts with us in this, this type of way. That's, that's what the normal mass is throughout history, and probably even today, yes, that's even probably today. how they, yeah, they conceive of God. And so we got this uh, thing about Catholics and their saints. But And guess what? He even mentions that in this book. He says, but Christianity itself in Southern Europe has not altogether obliterated the original features of the paganism which it displaced. The Spanish peasants who insult the Madonna of a neighboring village and come to blows over the merits of a rival local saint still do homage to the same antique conception of religion. And so, yeah, I don't know if he saw that to bring it up, but that is what he's talking about. So he goes on to say the principle that a fundamental conception of ancient religion is the solidarity of the gods and their worshipers as part of one organic society carries with it important consequences, which I propose to examine in some detail. 
with special reference to the group of religions that forms the proper subject of these lectures, the Semite religions. So people were associated with their God. And so he starts going on to talk about blood revenge and the concept of blood and shared identity, which I think is actually very crucial for understanding ancient religion. Uh, blood is important. Blood has, uh, has concepts that are embodied in it. it. Oh, is it not moving? Where's this guy going? Okay. So anything strike you from these passages? Um, I, so I think if I recall, he, he was saying that it's actually sort of paradoxical because the community is a lot, you would have a society based upon a township. You wouldn't necessarily come together just because you're all part of the same clan, same blood, that sort of thing. You're using, you're using the, the Godhead, um, of, of your, whatever your local God is as the reason to come together. But the only way you can bond people to that godhead is to say that you have a blood relation to it. And so, so they have to tie each other by blood as though the, that you are part of God's family in the first place to get them to all, all, all see themselves as the same group. Right. And so he has the... Oh, go ahead. What, and so he, he's just saying that it's kind of paradoxical that on the one hand, like it's a it, the community is not bound through kinship and yet they use kinship as the primary mechanism to make a community in the first place in this indirect way yeah yeah so <clears throat> you, you have things like blood oaths that he talks about not not in these passages but in other ones in which you form alliances and typical blood rituals would, would be you cut your hand they'd cut their hand There'd be some sort of exchange of blood. You may even consume each other's blood a little bit. You might swear on altars to various deities and put your blood on those altars. Some sort of sharing of blood, which represented a mingling and joining of a clan just for these oaths. And so the idea was you, you, could, you could incorporate people through blood relationship into your clan. And so it, the, the clan is identified with the deity. And so you see in the Bible over and over, we already talked about the Ruth example, but uh, anytime people are driven out, they're driven out from God. They're, they're, the phrase here, go and serve other yeah. gods. Yeah, yeah the he one writes, you didn't highlight just before this is David, who is, who is forced by Saul out of his own community. He thought he was being forced away from Yahweh because of that. Right. You you have uh, even, uh, we've talked about divine dirt before. When someone wants to worship to Yahweh, they might take jars of dirt from Yahweh's land back to their homeland because the dirt has an association with the God who owns that land, right? So that there's there's divine dirt. The dirt has has ownership. And so in that way, you could kind of recreate Israel in a foreign place to worship Yahweh, although you are remote from that tribe. He writes, in driving him to seek refuge in another land and another nationality, they compel him to change his religion, for man's religion is part of his political connection. They quote Jeremiah, Jeremiah, in the full consciousness of all the falsehood of all the religions except that of Israel, remarks that no nation changes its gods, although they be no gods. A nation's worship remains as consistent as its political identity. 
So this is important. Uh, our nation was associated with their cultural identity was with that deity. It's it's not just a religion you add on to your daily life. Um, there there are duties, ritual duties that were expected of you. You're associated with this people. Yeah, and, and so then the, the next paragraph is just as interesting because he starts listing a, a bunch of examples of what, like in battle over and over again, when they say God is with us, they literally meant God is with us. They had sacred tents where the gods would be in. They have the all the the, the um, Ark of the Covenant where God would would be with them in battle. They they um, they have gods fighting so that every battle is is your God is the one who's winning the fight for you, fighting in that group. And so they they believed that as a community they they were with God, their God representing themselves and so you have this weird like i don't know if it's this paragraph but he gives one example where they uh, it was like the, the moabites or something they they fought they fought a battle and they said well uh we didn't win because we couldn't appeal to our god but then he changed his mind and we won something like that and so they don't necessarily know why they're winning why the their god is not helping them or deciding to help them but they judge that their god is with them by what happens in their battles in the first place yeah i'm reminded of uh in in the bible where god threatens not to actually travel with israel anymore he says i'm going to abandon you because guess what you guys are so evil that if i'm traveling with you and you guys do this stuff i might get so mad just to kill you all so it's better for <laughs> me to leave and i'll send an angel with you instead and then Moses, of course, intercedes and says, don't do that, God. It's, we, we, we really want you to come with us. It's, it's very important for us that you're traveling with us uh, personally, not some sort of angel creature, not some sort of delegate or something. You personally he says, OK. And, and why is it important? Yeah, so that they could have the blessings. So, so they that could they win, could win. The battle. <laughs> so that they could win. <laughs> Right. It's, it's, it's incredibly important to them because that will give them some assurances and, and it'll give them, it'll give them that edge, we'll say. Mm -hmm. So he goes on to say, religious, like political ties, were transmitted from father to son, for a man could not choose a new god at will. The gods of his fathers were the only deities on whom he could count as friendly and ready to accept his homage unless he forsworn his own kindred and was received into a new circle of civil as well as religious life. So that we, we get that uh, Naomi and Ruth example as well. You have to forsake your old, old society. There's not an in intermingling. This is in the Bible um, when they're exp expelling the foreign wives. I think it's in Ezra. This is the reason is because the foreign wives have not forsaken the old deities. You know, like men, they don't, they, they sometimes allow their wives to just, you know, they see a pretty lady or something and they'll just let her do what she wants. It's it's the hot, crazy matrix, right? How much, how much are you willing to deal with? And Ezra's like, this is too much. You're incorporating all these foreign deities. I cut them off. You all have to divorce your foreign wives. We can't have any of this because they were violating this. They were, they were trying to import foreign deities into Israelite community. He says, the old Semites believed in the existence of many gods. 
for they accepted as real the gods of their enemies as well as their own. But they did not worship the strange gods from whom they had no favor to expect and on whom their gifts and offerings would have been thrown away. So I, I'm reminded of uh, in Exodus when the plagues come down, the plagues are not only against the people of Egypt, but also their gods. The plagues are meant to mock and punish the gods of the Egyptians. It's not like the Egyptian gods were false. They're real beings, but these beings are not as powerful as Yahweh. They can't contend with him. And even though they could replicate some of the miracles, they could replicate the, the staffs turning to snakes, there is a power struggle there in which you see the Yahweh snake staffs eat the, the sorcerer snake staffs. And so it, it's, a, it's a power contest, and the power contest is won by the dominant deity, which would be Yahweh. So let's let's talk about some physical aspects and uh, physical uh, intermingling. That's uh, physical relations. In the physical aspect, the father is the being to whom the child owes his life, and through whom he traces kinship with other members of his family or clan. The antique conception of kinship is participation in one blood. So this is what we've, we're talking about already, that the one blood is, is conceptually what links the entire clan. You're one people, one group. And so you'll see things like intergenerational punishment, uh, corporate punishment. You'll, you'll see uh, people being considered as a group guilty of the sins of one person and vice versa. People who are innocent being considered guilty of the actions of the clan because it's one people. Conceptually, they're all linked and they're all one individual and yeah, they're the treated as a whole. Yeah. <clears throat> he says, uh, they, the, of kinship is participation in one blood, which passes from parent to child and circulates in the veins of every member of the family. The unity of the family or clan is viewed as a physical unity for the blood is the life, an idea familiar to us from the Old mm -hmm. Testament. And we already read that, that the blood is the life. Blood is associated with life within the Bible. It is the same blood and therefore the same life that is shared by every descendant of the common ancestor. The idea that the race has a life of its own, of which individual lives are only parts, is expressed even more clearly by picturing the race as a tree, of which the ancestor is the root or stem and the descendants the branches. This figure is used by all the Semites and it's very common both in the Old Testament and in Arabian poets. And so I, I think of uh, Paul's statements in Romans, which he talks about branches that are grafted into the tree. He's like, Israel was the original tree. The branches are cut off. And what gets grafted on? The Gentile branches. Now the Gentiles are part of this tree. Remember, Paul had a more cosmopolitan outreach. He was reaching out to Gentiles and trying to bring them into a, a wider religion. Whereas in before times, that was not the case. But he draws on the same imagery that people belong to their ancestral trees. Any comments? Uh, I think you said it for this one. Uh, but uh, so, so the, you haven't highlighted this next paragraph, but I think this one's important. Where he, so he's pointing out that... Um, 
there, there's something it's more metaphorical when you're talking about Jehovah's children that that he's saying that in Christianity and in in uh in Judaism even th this is what I was referring to in the previous comment that you know you're you're the sons of God and you are one nation because you are the children of Jehovah but he's saying that uh, that is a, a metaphorical expression so that last sentence says this sonship is not national not personal the individual israelite has not the right to call him jehovah's son but then the next paragraph is that for heathen religions that wasn't the case so so there's this sort of di distinction where everyone's kind of using a similar terminology but they don't actually think of themselves as the literal blood son of jehovah in the same way that the Greeks and a number of the other Semites would consider themselves children of their God. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't seem to like back it up. He just kind of says it. Well, well, like I said, this whole lecture is is not him trying to prove anything. So if you read this, all of this, he's he makes a huge list of assertions and never proves anything, because I don't think that's his point. Like I think this is what you do when you stand up at a pulpit, not when you try to argue your case in front of a court or something like that so it's just the nature of the, the work we're reading he's not trying to prove anything right he says but in the heathen religion the fatherhood of the gods is physical fatherhood among the greeks for example the idea that the gods fashion men out of clay as potters fashion images is relatively modern and i think i looked up uh that reference there and he's quoting maybe like a first century greek poet with that reference yeah. But yeah, we do need to consider the possibility that when idioms are used in the Bible, they might be literal. They might be literally saying the things that it 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 doesn't have to be the case, but we need to consider it as part of the scope of possibilities. <clears throat> so again in Chaldean legend preserved by Berosis, the belief that men are the blood of the gods is expressed in the form too crude not to be very ancient for animals as well as men are said to have been formed out of the clay and mingled with the blood of a decapitated deity and so the semite religion has a lot of parallels so we got to remember that even yahwehism yahwehism was in vogue even before israelites took up yahweh worship you read in Genesis where people start calling on the name of Yah or Yahweh, and then you have Israel, not until Moses intervenes, in which they learn the name of Yahweh, which they had been worshiping El before. And El is associated with Yahweh. And there, there's, a, there's a famous passage where it says, El is Yahweh, El is Yahweh, El is Yahweh, that, that sort of idea. But there was a wider worship of Yahweh, and when they come into when they come into the promised land, they meet various worshipers of Yahweh. First of all, you have Moses's father-in-law, which is a Yahweh worshiper before Moses. And then you have uh, people like, uh, oh man, I'm, I'm, I'm losing it here. You have uh, uh, the false prophet, Balaam. Balaam is, is communicating with Yahweh on a regular basis. He calls on him, even before he even knows who Israel is, he's familiar with and talks to Yahweh, and he has some sort of power to make curses on behalf of Yahweh, which are then enforced at a deity level. 
right? And so the idea of ancient religion is you, you could call on the deities to act on your behalf. You, you perform rituals in which they, they help you out. And so that's one of the reasons why in the biblical text in Numbers, uh, God goes out of his way to ensure that Balaam is not able to put a curse on Israel. He says, don't do it. Um, I'm, that's, that's not going to happen. Um, I'm, we're, he, he threatens to kill him, that, those types of things, because he doesn't want the guy actually making a curse against Israel. And instead, he does blessings, if that makes sense. So let's, let's scroll down a little bit. It's, it is a pretty long lecture. Right. And, well, I mean, some of the things you're, you're skipping is, is he's, he's trying to, also talk about sort of the the change in you know you start with the, the single uh city that has has their god then you have multiple communities that need to deal with some sort of pan pantheon of gods if they're going to come together as a, a larger tribe but what he's saying happened in the israel case is that instead of treating treating like all the, the their local deities as as a singular um god that's attached to them and then creating a pantheon they instead because yahweh is the only one true god they had to move from imagery of god being father to, to god being king to god being a more of a divine ruler instead and so so the israel israel's way of bonding together and building a larger group of people is is to change the nature of how god relates to man in the first place is his argument at least yeah, and you'll see similar arguments. Uh, how does Israel maintain their national unity, even though they're a conquered people by the Syrians and Babylonians? The idea is that they are being punished by Yahweh. They're, they're still one kin, and God will restore them to their land, restore them to their rights. And so it's not taken as a defeat. Remember, you had the ancient conception of deities fighting against each other. But in that case, it's not an actual defeat. It's God's punishment is the framing of that. And so they retain that character, that identity. Yeah, and so it is it is interesting that Israel could not exist without Yahweh, right? The What makes Israel Israel is that they, are, they relate to their God. Even in when they're fully occupied, even when many of them are taken away in captivity, what makes you Israelite is that you worship Yahweh and they're not evangelizing. They're not trying to get other people to be part of that, even though you could forsake your God and become whatever your local deity is and then become part of the Israelites if you wanted to. Yeah, so <laughs> I got kids running around upstairs being crazy. <clears throat> It says uh, Islam was very deficient in religion in the ordinary sense of the word. Uh, the Arab war, of course, it, it says the Arab war in the ages immediately preceding Islam was very deficient in religion in the ordinary sense of the word. He was little occupied with the things of the gods and negligent in the matter of ritual worship. Of course, I, there's no sources, so he's just saying, well, we'll just have to trust him. But he had a truly religious reverence for his clan. A kinsman's blood was to him a thing holy and inviolable. So I'm going to let you talk about that real quick. I'm going to go calm my babies down. Yeah, this is a little bit of what I was was trying to refer to before. Uh, this, 
I don't know if you guys ha are following along with the same stuff, but you know, his ability, these warriors are, you know, they work through blood, they think through blood and, and fighting and all this sort of thing. And so they need to be able to relate to a God that, that understands that kind of enduring sanctity. And so that's why they need to tie God to them through some sort of blood ritual. Did you calm them down? <laughs> yeah, I sent them all the way upstairs. Now they could run around and be crazy up there. The circle of worship was still the kin, though the deity worship was not of the kin, and the only way in which two kindreds could form a religious fusion was by covenant ceremony, in which it was symbolically set forth that they were no longer twain, but of one blood. So this is the idea of uh, kinship being rooted in blood, uh, oaths, you'd mingle blood, uh, you'd become one community, and you would ally yourself and incorporate yourself into the clan. This is how clans would merge, they'd become one blood. We've already read from the biblical example, blood was the life force. And so sharing of one life force, sharing of one family, this, this, is, this is all one thing. The community is one life force. They all share one blood. This is the idea. So <laughs> uh, this paragraph's interesting. It's often said that the original Semitic conception of the Godhead was abstract and transcendental. That while Aryan religion, with its poetic mythology, drew the gods down into the sphere of nature and human life, Semitic religion always showed the opposite tendency. That is, it sought to remove the gods from as far as possible as man, even and even contained within itself, from the first, the seeds of abstract theism. And so, probably the people claiming this are probably pundits, probably Christians or Christian scholars who really want to separate separate Israel from their surrounding uh, the surrounding context you know I, I do think it's funny when you're listening to debates people like Chris date and they're like well you need to put it in its ancient context so you don't want to do that you don't want to do that at all because that would not behoove your point you're trying to make right now um, it's just regularly admitted that uh, other Semite religion Aryan religion Egyptian religion, a Greek religion that they, they anthropomorphize God. And I don't mean that in the sense of they just say nonsense that they don't believe. They a lot of times literally believe that God has bodies. Yeah. A body, multiple bodies. It says, according to this view, the anthropomorphisms of Semitic religion, that is all expressions, which in their literal sense, imply that the gods have a physical nature a cognate to that of man are explained away as mil, mere allegory and it is urged in proof of the fundamental distinction between the Aryan and Semitic conceptions of the divine nature that myths like those of the Aryans in which the gods act like men mingle with men and live and in fact live common life with mankind have little or no place in Semitic religion but all this is mere unfounded assumption and so you'll find examples like that in the Bible, God comes down, he eats with man. He has uh, dinner with Moses on Mount Sinai. He has dinner with Abraham, 
Um, there's interactions. He's walking in the garden. You have the Genesis 6, if those are divine creatures actually having children with women, divine beings populating. Oh, there, there's another, I don't know if it's in this lecture by this guy or a different one entirely, where he's saying they, they conceived everyone not as different different species or different that they're all all beings were basically one uh continuity they they, they all they all were part of the same genre you you'll you, you say they there there wasn't like divine beings and then physical beings everything was part of the whole even animals were on the spectrum and so that that's it's a different way to to understand the world around us, but it, it's one that kind of rings true, right? Yeah, yeah. He you goes have, on, uh, he oh, goes yeah. on to, to show a number of, of spots where in the next paragraph, well, it's actually just one giant paragraph, but he he does reference things like that the Hebrew, um, the passages that we I referred to earlier, sons of God coming down for with the daughters of women and he shows a number of other examples in antiquity with all these gods babylon um uh, the god bell was still in the time of herodotus provided a human wife the clan of Amr why just just go to the next paragraph so people can see what i'm reading just next page i think yeah there yeah so so he's giving these examples so there's a there's a hero is Dubar of the Babylonian myth, and the great goddess offered his hand. So all, you have all these human beings marrying gods and goddesses, having children with them, uh, and and it's just sort of some natural thing that happens. They're all like there's no distinction between their ability to to come together as as a single unit. Yeah, so you even get this a little bit in the biblical idea where in Genesis is, let us, well, who's he talking to in Genesis? Let us make man in our image. And people are like, well, that's the Trinity. Well, I don't think so. Um, it seems to be divine beings. They're having probably a normal, normal consultation, like you'll see a divine council in which they're discussing the creation of man. Hey, let's make man in our image after our likeness. Any objections? You see time and time and again in the Bible where there's the divine council and different people will give different objections or different input to God. Well, God sits on the throne and then makes that final decision. Let's make man in our image. Okay, let's do that. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him male and female. And so it's not like, it's not like a man's a different... Uh, I'd hate to use like species or on a different uh, continuum than God. It they're all divine image bearers. I think in the in the words of Michael Heiser, we're imagers of God. All right. <clears throat> oh, then he has this big part about uh, deities uh, changing gender based on. Um, based on the, the ritual worship, we'll kind of skip that for sake of time. Yeah, because yeah, we're at page 53 of, of 80. <laughs> this yeah. is a very long lecture, and it's like there's a lot to go through. And again, it, it comes in the form of this is what 
his accumulated knowledge is from reading a bunch of things, not here's the proof for this, here's the proof for that, here's the proof for that. So it's kind of like what we're doing is we're reacting to somebody else, you know, just telling you what he knows. All right. So to understand the clan concept better, uh, this this paragraph is pretty important. To <clears throat> to our better judgment, for example, one of the most offensive features in tribal religion is its particularism. A man is held answerable to his God for wrong done to a member of his own kindred or political community, but he may deceive, rob, and kill an alien without offense to religion. The deity cares only for his own kinsfolk. And so you'll see this in the Bible, like charging interest. It wasn't actually illegal for Israel to charge interest against anyone, but just against fellow clan members. Right there, there's different sets of rules for how you treat the the in group versus the out group. Yeah, this is like this is a weird section because I think he goes back on that and and starts saying that people try to be known as you know people who offer um, hospitality. It's it's a bit funny because like you know if you read the bible about like you know love your neighbor as yourself and then you want to know who your neighbor is it's not just in the new testament where jesus defines this because they, they have they have descriptions of how to deal with strangers in a strange land how to be very hospitable for hospitable for them so right this, that, this notion that that you could just with impunity behave poorly towards people outside your tribe i don't think it's definitely not true for for judaism well there is the the instance in which um the sons of uh oh <clears throat> let's see uh where yeah sons of abraham where, where what am i thinking about they killed all those people they just went in and just killed them all after uh their sister was quote-unquote raped Right. And then they had all the people circumcised and then just went and, and killed them. And there's like no commentary on that. Right? Yeah, but but so many of the passages throughout the Bible are no commentary. They're to interpret that as that there is no actual ethical judgment. That if, if there's no commentary, then there's no practical consequence. Okay. That is and, true. And so one thing that he talks about, and probably not this lecture, but uh, part of the hospitality rules is that if you're sharing substance, if you're sharing food, you're basically partaking in the same ritual ritual act. And right. so you're, you're kind of incorporating those individuals. It matters who you break bread with. Yeah. And so he even gives example. He, he, he talks about the Mohammedans, uh, Islam quite a lot, but uh, he mentions their practices of hospitality through breaking of bread where once you break bread then you definitely have to you have to look out for that person and and uh, you're an advocate for that person from then on so this service it was able to render because the gods were themselves members of the kin and the man who was untrue to the kindred uh duty had to reckon with them as with his human clansmen so i'll need to figure out what what the context is of that so basically, in-group and out-group had different standards. We did talk about some rules of hospitality. 
Um, but it, it's 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 not like it's not like one murder from one clan to another that your clan is going to be avenging against you for a murder of an outside clansman, someone who's outside your clan. But you will have within the Bible what's known as the Avenger of Blood. And that seems to be if someone is blood relations with someone who does get murdered, that person who is relations with the murdered person has a responsibility, a duty, and the moral authority to chase down the murderer and then exact exact uh, revenge. He's an avenger, avenges that blood. And so there, there is some duties for that. All right, we'll keep scrolling down. So religion is not an arbitrary relation of an individual man to a supernatural power. It is a relation of all the members of a community to a power that has the good of the community at heart and protects its laws and moral order. And so one thing that I come come and think about is uh, like uh, in the Bible where one person will have an offense, maybe one person has an idol in their possessions, and then all of Israel is punished until they're able to to ascertain who that who the violator is and then punish or strike that that violator from their community. All right. Because it's a threat to the entire community if someone is is, is calling upon a, a different god. That God, the other God, does not have the the community's interest at heart, and you're like in bringing it in in a way that it can do harm to your group. Right. So the idea is, we we keep communion with God, we perform the rituals, we perform the rites, and any threat to the community needs to be exposed and judged and kicked out of the community for sake of the whole. Keep, keep scrolling down here. Uh, so uh, he does go into people's relationship with their deities. Can a deity abandon his people? And the short answer is no. And you see this throughout the Bible often, like in, in Judges. God, God says, "Hey, I keep saving you guys, and you keep turning evil, and I keep saving you, and uh, you know, you call out, and I save you, then you become evil again. It's like this is just not working. We're going to have to call this all off. I'm going to stop saving you, and then what happens? They call out for to be saved again, and then he immediately turns back on what he said he was going to do to save them yet again. And so the idea is that, you know, maybe you're a father and you have kids." And they keep disappointing you. Um, you're not. You're never going to fully abandon them. All right. It. That's the idea being discussed here. He says, as regards his worshippers at large, it appears scarcely conceivable from the point of view of a tribal religion that the god can be so much displeased with anything they do that his anger can go beyond a temporary estrangement, which is readily terminated by their repentance or even by mere change of humor on the part of the God. Sometimes in the Bible, God changes for his own sake. And and uh, they're very, the prophets are very keen on understanding when God's angry and when God's not, because his temperament changes will 
will drive his uh, actions or responses to different stimuli, we'll say. When his permanent affection for his people gets the better of his momentary displeasure, as it is pretty sure to do if he sees them to be in straits. In other words, to be hard-pressed by their and his enemies. On the whole, men live on very easy terms with their tribal god, and his paternal authority is neither strict nor exacting. Yeah, it's a bit funny that uh, there, there's some people who, who who treat God as a micromanager. You know, what should I order on the menu? Well, maybe maybe God knows what's best for me on uh, to order on that menu, but he's like that. That wasn't wasn't the idea in those days. Definitely not. They they were sort of like it, it's an overall watchfulness of, of of being who's looking out for your best interest, but doesn't really need to control what you're doing at any given time. Yeah, last night well, I was uh, talking about this Calvinist who. Uh, complaining that open theists don't think that God will know what you have for breakfast tomorrow. That was his big complaint. It's like, that's what, is that like a thing? That's not like a thing that, that bothers God, him. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it's fairly common for Calvinists to be like, uh, you know what you can have for dinner, but God doesn't. It's like, that's not, it's, it it's, doesn't, it's, it's, it's not like part he wants of to duty. be an eternal child, right? He doesn't want any autonomy in his life where he can, he can take charge of it and be, because if you do that, then you have to be responsible for your life. That what happens in your life and the consequences of that, you know, they reflect on what your decisions you're making. And if you're just saying it's all up to God, you can avoid responsibility for it. Yeah. And so I, I do see a lot of uh, this stuff going on in, in the Bible where God time and time comes back to Israel. You even have nostalgia in the Bible. I think it's, uh, oh, is it Ezekiel 18? Uh, not, maybe not Ezekiel 18. Oh, um, not Ezekiel 18. What I'm thinking of, but, um, oh, where, where God has nostalgia, like, Oh, I found you. And then I raised you up and you were so beautiful. It's like, if you read the Bible, did that ever really happen? Then it's like, there's this, uh, there's this, uh, honeymoon period where everything was fantastic it's just god picks up israel and it's just it's nothing I mean, but I contention i i don't know if that's true because like it's not going on a year-by-year -year basis it could be same way that a cop only sees the worst examples of humanity maybe the bible's only recording the, the bad times it could be it, it could be a, a, that type of picture but but I would like to think of it as nostalgia. Maybe you first get married to your wife and um, your first five years, you're fighting on and off. But then like 20 years later, you're like, wow, those were the best times. We were, we were living in this this uh, fast-paced world and doing things. And, you know, you might, you might have nostalgia. But uh, David writes, when God changed the sour grapes effect in Ezekiel, it wasn't for the better. And so the concept he's referring to here is the idea that in Jeremiah, uh, God says that that uh, there, there's this common saying in Israel that the fathers eat sour grapes and then the children's taste it. That you know, and the idea is that. 
because of the father's sins or because of the father's actions, the consequences flow down to the future generations. And God says, there's going to be a time where the saints no more. And then in Ezekiel, God says, don't, don't be using this anymore. Everyone's going to be judged individually. And so you see within a Bible, a change from a cultural a conception of, of your community of, of individual responsibility to individualistic. No, no more are children saved on behalf of their parents. You have situations like Noah, where it says Noah's perfect in his generations. It doesn't actually talk about his kids. Lot, Lot has kids. Lot has family members. But I don't it, know. it doesn't talk about their righteousness. They're, they're, they just incidentally get saved based on who their lineage is, who their, who their parents are. And so this yeah. is reversed. And it says, it doesn't matter. Everyone's going to be judged individually. Even if you're Lot, uh, even if you're Noah, uh, your kids are going to be judged I, on their own merits. I, I don't think it's appropriate to use the word individually because what what's really happening is it's directly you're more you're directly tied to God and and like this guy's pointing out, God is moving from sort of this paternal father with a grand lineage to a king with a you know a large population which he is sovereign over, and so you are directly responsible to your king at this point. You're not independent in, in the sense that like you can do whatever you want. You're 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 now extracted from your community. You're now extracted from your uh, uh, responsibility towards God or your duties toward Him. Instead, it's it's just you know it's a different way of binding a whole group together by having that direct connection. Yeah. So further down, uh, it starts talking about how deity worked and how it functioned and how it interacted with the community. We were just talking about breakfast cereals, how that's not like part of God's prerogative to try to know what breakfast cereal you're going to eat tomorrow. It's, it's not a concern. It's only a concern in, in modern Christianity where people want to argue these really weird, th like, does it matter what cereal I eat tomorrow? Why does, why does God need to know that this it's not a thing. And so the, that's how it worked in Semite religion is God doesn't micromanage. It says in most matters of internal order, he was not expected to interfere unless directly appealed to by one or the other party in a dispute. And so you see within the book of Judges, um, Judges, the, the whole system of Judges is set up based on Moses's father's in law's idea to set up a series of cascading levels of judges and it it's not it's not like the american appeals process where if you don't like what the judge says you go to the next judge no the actual appeal process in the bible was if one judge didn't know what to do he just appealed to the higher judge and the higher judge would make the decision it's a very decentralized way of making decisions and that that's how it's structured so <clears throat> the top judge is not consulted except for when all the other judges aren't able to do their duty they don't know how to do their duty they need advice from people above them in in that line and so the, this is there is saying that this is how the deities also acted um they allowed things to take place but didn't interact unless directly called upon so which which gives you idea that what prayer is prayer is calling on the deity to act in some fashion typically on your behalf to solve problems 
this this is their your invitation for intercession into an area where that deity would not otherwise intercede. And so within the Bible, prayer is everywhere and always treated as effectual, that the prayer changes God's mind to have God do something that God wouldn't otherwise do. God actually listens to the prayer and often does things, even things that are against what he wants to do, he will do on the sake of the petitioner. No comment? Well, so if you go to the next, yeah, oh, you have it. Yeah, yeah. So, so he's expanding upon this is that really there's the, the Semitic tradition in general is a very loose connection, is a very, like, in terms of like, you're not monitored for every little thing. You are free to do what you want. There's only a limited set of rules, there's only a limited set of responsibilities to so and so that you have to worry about and so you don't have to live under this sort of painful ever-present omni omnipresent eye that's looking at anything you're doing at any given time and that 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 was actually considered a negative if you if you would be under that they, they don't they're not asking for that they're not demanding that at any time Yeah, so he, he writes here, so a loose system, this will get the Cal the Calvinists are like, you got to look at the ancient context. Well, here's some ancient context for you. So loose, so loose a system of administration did not offer a pattern on which to frame the conception of a consistent, unremitting divine providence, overlooking no injustice and suffering, no right to be crushed. The national God might be good and just, but it what was not continually active or omnipresent in his activity. I think about times in the Psalms where it's like, why do you hide your face, God? Your people are dying all day long. He's, he's not always active. He's, it's not an omnipresent activity. But we are not to suppose that this was remiss, that this remiss was felt to be a defect in divine character. Well, unlike modern Christians, modern Christians will be like, oh, that makes God terrible. The Semitic nature is impatient of control and has no desire to be strictly governed either by human or by divine authority. They're, they're more individualistic than the modern American will say. Yeah, it, I don't know how many people actually think that makes God terrible, to be honest. Because most people are essentially Arminian in nature. They don't, like, like they kind of, maybe if you, if, they're sort of guessing they're going to say, oh, God, God really needs to know all these things. But, you know, their day-to-day -day lives, they certainly don't think and act that way. They kind of re relate to God in the same way the Semitic model is, which is, look, uh, I, I will live my life in general doing the things I need, and then I will occasionally seek God's guidance on X, Y, and Z. Yeah, practically, practically speaking, it's about the same. Yeah, but yeah, they behave the exact same way that we're talking about the Semitic model. It's just that the Semitic model, I guess, is formally like that, whereas they're kind of informally like that. Yeah, the metaphysics are impractical, and Semite religion is entirely practical. That's why it's a huge mistake to come to the Bible and grab a phrase out and then think that they're talking about metaphysics. 
oh, God draws all men to himself. Oh, this means that there's like an internal mechanism in people and there's a trigger that's flipped. That's not what they're, they're talking about practicality. You know, uh, there, there's practical means to do things. And uh, anytime you see God acting, it's through practical methods. Uh, God wants a certain city preached to, and the prophet doesn't want to do it. He swallows him but with a big fish and basically threatens his life. Go do this. Get this done. And the guy's like, okay, that's, it's pro it probably behoove me to go do this because this other thing's not working out. So practicality but, within the Bible. But, but Again, you know, think of Jonah's perspective. He thought he could run away. Like, yeah, he, he did he, think he could run he away. He is a prophet of God, and he literally thinks he can run away. He's not a Calvinist. He's not sitting there with some metaphorical belief of that, that God is all, ever watching everywhere, doing everything. Yeah, people tend to discount the actual actors within the Bible and the individual actors' perception of God. And it's, it's really funny. He says, a God who can be reached when he was wanted, but usually left men pretty much to themselves, was far more acceptable than one whose ever watchful eye can neither be avoided nor deceived. What the Semite communities asked and believed themselves to receive from their God as a king lay mainly in three things. One, help against their enemies. Two, counsel by oracles or soothsayers in the matters of national difficulty. And three, a sentence of justice when the case was too hard for human decisions. I'd add on that uh, within the Bible and within these ancient societies, also there was idea of oath enforcement. Often these oaths were, were taking place before God, and God was expected to enforce those oaths even on non-moral matters, right? Within Ezekiel, you, you find quite a lot of that, that God, God is expected to enforce, not Ezekiel, Ecclesiastes, that God is, God is expected to enforce those oaths. So this is God as king. It, it might be worth noting just on a practical matter that societies kind of organize themselves where you don't micromanage other people if you don't have the ability to do so. If, if everyone lives on a farm by themselves, you can't make rules for everyone for every farm everywhere because you can't go around monitoring, you can't go around enforcing. So a society that, that operates that way will be a society that has very limited sets of rules. And the micromanagement only comes when with the enforcement, like the deep, the deep state's ability to monitor you comes once the technology is there to monitor literally every action you do on Google or something like that. Uh, the the uh, the U.S. needed the income tax to be instituted for their ability to like create all these massive government agencies in the first place, like so. It's interesting to look at how, how a society like the Semites are, are formed because it's kind of like a natural consequence of their pastoral heritage. They can't, they have to be a, a group that has a system of judges for the most part. They have to be a group that is left to their own for the most part because you can't actually go around enforcing all these rules at all times. And so their whole conception of the world is going to be framed by that, including their conception of how God relates to them. Yeah, I do think you have, I think he actually talks about this in, in, uh, in some passage that it does reflect their form of society. And he claims that their idea of deity 
morphed as they became more centralized with more power and with more resources to exact that the general Semitic idea of deity changed to approach that, to match that. Right. All right, we'll read this paragraph here. We're skipping forward quite a bit. From early, very early date, the Semitic communities embraced, in addition to the free tribesmen of pure blood, with their families and slaves, a class of men who were personally free but had no political rights uh, vis-a-vis the protected strangers, of whom mention is so often made both by the Old Testament and early Arabic literature, the Gur was a man of another tribe or district who coming to sojourn in a place where he was not strengthened by the presence of his own kin, put himself under the protection, uh, the pro, are we missing page? So, dude, we're missing uh, a page. We're missing three pages. Yeah, we're missing. Okay. Well, anyway. Well, we—it's all about the gur, the person who's uh, who's yeah. protected. I'll have to go find if I have versions of this book with it in because I have several versions floating around. All right, scrap that idea. But the idea is um, that sojourners did have some level of protection. They put themselves under the protection of a clan while they're traveling, and there was idea of hospitality. All right. Did did uh, we get through this all? There's eighty. Uh, yeah. How far did we go? Yeah. So so, what is the like overarching point you want to bring out of this? So I wanted to talk a little bit about societies and how societies function, uh, the unity of clans, the idea of the tribe, and the idea of how a tribe relates to deity, uh, blood relationship. We were talking uh, on one podcast about blood memory, how how the blood is seen as the life force. The life force is shared by the clan. The life force is passed down, and perhaps traits or experiences or or features can run in the blood between these these various actors. And so, the relationship of a uh, blood community to its deity is is it literal? Is is it literal? In the Bible, is it literal elsewhere? Do the people share God's blood life force? And and to what extent do they see this life force and how does it act on a community in a whole? How does it function and how uh, how does it shape cultural norms or cultural practices or ritual rites? So do you think that Jehovah is unique among the Semitic groups or do you think it's typified? I think it's fairly close to the other Semitic religions. And evidence of this is in the fact that uh, you see within the Bible, there's always an intellectual uh, argument, advocacy for Yahweh, as opposed to other deities. Because Israel could, in fact, um, they, they could leave Yahwehism and join other cults. And that was always a reoccurring problem. So it's not like... It's not like they saw Yahweh as, let, let's say, the Neoplatonic notion of pure actuality or anything like that. And then, then they're moving to like a lower deity. That, that, that'd be really weird. They conceived him as one of several available options 
for similar worship and basing and based off of defeats of uh, their people versus victories that their allegiances might so, shift. So, so what is the commentary in the Bible then calling the other gods just wood and stone? If not denying the, the, their very deity in the first place. Yeah, that's a good question. Sometimes it says these these guys are lifeless. They're not nothing. They're nothing. They're they're not gods. And other times they're they talk about there's there's no god that's equal to Yahweh. That doesn't mean there's not other gods, but none of them compare to him. There's no other god besides Yahweh. Means those other gods aren't at Yahweh's status or level. And so I I think there's a combination of both. So maybe they're conceiving as these idols. Are lifeless and these idols don't actually do anything or conceive of anything or even if they have some sort of deity behind them that deity is not power enough powerful enough to affect anything because the ark of the covenant is not supposed to be god it's supposed to be sort of like a dwelling or how does that work it's just a sacred object that they would typically put in god's dwelling place which would be the temple so, so they, they don't really consider they don't have any object that's considered to be God at any point. God is outside of all of these objects. Right, which makes them fairly unique. It are actually it creates some interesting things like uh, when when uh, Caesar's friend um, who, who is Caesar's buddy who he killed? Pompey. Pompey invaded the temple. He goes into the Holy of Holies. And uh, Pompey is familiar with the mystery cults. And so the mystery cults are going to have something in the inner temple, some sort of reflection object or some sort of worship object or adoration object. Like uh, Dionysus would have like grains, uh, like wheat grains that that would symbolize the fertility quote that you meditate upon. Israel had nothing. Pompey said, these, these guys' mysteries are empty. We went into their mystery chamber, and there's nothing there. There's literally nothing there. Mm -hmm. And so Israel didn't have any icons that uh, other peoples could really smash. They could do stuff like take the Ark of the Covenant, and we do see that within the Bible, but there's no representations of God. And I think the idea is that in Genesis, we as human beings are the imager of God, so God doesn't need a separate imager. And so uh, all the idols that are manifestations of God are, are struck in. We're not supposed to do them because we ourselves are those imagers. Yeah. So it does seem to me that like there's a historical context, which frames the, the, the language and the arguments that are happening, but also like, I don't know if you can use the, the God of Israel as a way, as like an example of what, all the Semitic people are like. Seems like there are times that they're similar and they're like such as the the unified life force of of certain deities, but but I think they would call them like angels or, or demons of, of that sort, right? So they don't consider the other gods to be de deities so much as demons or or some sort of like lower God is still separate yeah. from all, all of these things, which are, I think, still in Judaism, like all of these things are created except God. 
Right? Yeah, I think that's the idea. Um, but that would be the equivalent to maybe an L in a Babylonian pantheon, right? Some sort of father god over over right. Marduk or something like that. Right. So there's no competing L or anything that, that God is fighting over with. He's, in fact, just demonstrated that he is the father god above all the others. Yeah, but you do have inter-deity warfare within ancient culture. Like Marduk overthrows, uh, what, Timot in uh, what Babylonian epics or in the Numa Leash? Numa Leash, am I getting? Yeah, in the Numa Leash. You, so you do have deities striving for dominance, even over the most dominant deity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how Israel conceives God and the foreign gods is that uh, Yahweh is the primary deity and other gods can actually strive against him. They don't win, but they do still strive. But, but sometimes they win if the idea of winning is just that they, they win the battle. Well, yeah, they win battles, but they don't overthrow his place. Right? So it's it doesn't change up the hierarchy, even though they might win battles. They don't divinely usurp them hmm. if that makes sense so yeah I, I do think uh israel has some unique elements in uh, normal israelite religion um, but i don't think they're they don't preclude people from in in ancient times from comparing and uh deserting to other similar religions in such a way that they don't see them as conflicting right yeah so it'd be like let, let's say um there's some sort of a person in today's world who sees god as pure actuality pure simplicity outside time space and then they come across, let's say, an African cult that worships like a local deity. They don't say, oh, maybe I should convert to this. Maybe this is the real God. And not my, my it's, they're just on a different, they're, they're not similar things that you're going to get that. Right, but as soon as you start marrying people from the, that group, they're going to start bringing the false God into your camp and, and then start instituting worship of that. And so it becomes a threat to your whole community and maybe maybe evangelism was not popular because they knew that that was a risk you see it as examples in the bible you already gave an example that they start seeing all their all their wives are worshiping their foreign gods so they have to divorce them like maybe you know to, to preserve the continuity of of your own worship you don't want to have others come into your group yeah, basically, um, the smaller and more close-knit your community is, the better um, cohesion, the, the better it's going to stay together. It's not going to fracture as easily. And so I think that is one of the inherent values of these blood cults or these blood clans or the idea of blood lineage and blood relation is that it keeps these communities close-knit and uh, creates a common sense of duty, obligation, bond. It makes a more coherent, more peaceful society. We, we see 
in the modern world, what happens when you diversify your population, uh, you could very easily, like high trust cultures could easily be thrust into low trust culture status, right? So uh, even 50 years ago, um, even when you and I are growing up, we'd leave our doors unlocked every day. You know, how how long have I been since I live somewhere where you just leave your doors unlocked all the time? It just, we, we've moved within 50 years from a fairly high trust society to a very low trust society where you can't rely on. You don't think you could get away with that with where you live right now? I probably, but that's not something you don't want to roll the dice on it. Yeah. Right. And so there's the story in the paper of a, uh, old man pulling over to help uh, two youths with a their car on the side of the road, and then they just they kill them. I mean, there's right? there's all kinds of stories like that. Yeah, but it's more and more common, and you're seeing that you're seeing a high trust society transition fairly quickly into a low trust society, mm-hmm. where people are like, let's 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 jump into a gated community. Um, we, we can't deal with this. And what are gated communities doing? They're recreating in a, a limited sense a, a smaller tribe. Yeah. These gated communities use like taxes as a way to filter the types of people who they want to associate with. Mm-hmm. They don't want just anyone moving. They're not going to let you put a trailer up, start a trailer park in their, their little community. Because they want to be selective, they want to want to create those smaller, close knit societies in which you could have high trust between neighbors. So that's the idea of uh, society and our relation to deity. And so I, I do think it had purpose. I do think uh, it's a very important purpose. I think we could actually take a lot of practical lessons from it practical lessons in creating community and uh, what sense of obligations that we should have for that community and how to build cohesion. Cohesion through kinship. (laughs) Cohesion through kinship. Right. But, but, but it seems like what you're saying is metaphorical kinship. You would have to, at least for at the beginning before you intermarry. Otherwise you don't have, you can't build a community in the first place. Well, it could be the case that uh, there's more than a metaphorical kinship. Maybe we all take blood oaths, blood mixing. Mm-hmm. You cut your figures. I don't know. Right. But, right. So, so what you do is you create artificial families that eventually become a true family. That That's what you're saying. Like, and I don't mean like a, a single family. I mean like a broader family, like broader kin. That you that's what blood brothers are right you, you take the blood oath and you mix the blood that's the concept is that you're trying to, to bind people in a kind of kinship even though they didn't begin that way yeah so i think that about concludes what we wanted to talk about today i think uh we made some pretty good ground maybe there's a few concepts that need to be flushed out i think uh, a, a study about the blood and the relationship of blood in the Bible to animals, to people, to the community, that would probably be a good follow-up study is the biblical conception of what blood is, how blood works and how blood functions. Maybe even talk about atonement theories 
and maybe pull up this guy's lecture on sacrifice and atonement. That would that would that would probably get a lot of people angry. I mean, people really really care about atonement theory. <laughs> so I, I don't know why, but that's that's one of the the sticky points for modern Christianity is they really care about atonement. Oh, so this next lecture is holy places and talks about the holy dirt. And so my podcast on holy dirt, I think I go over paragraphs and ideas that are discussed in this next lecture. Anything you want to say before we close here? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing to try to understand because like there's this sort of like religion true or, or false is not like it's not some arbitrary thing some sort of like i think the new atheists when they were very popular were trying to say that it was just some parasitical meme that would crop up for with no real purpose but what we see endlessly is that you can't really have communities without it your communities have no reason to co coexist it what's funny like the atheist community i don't know if you know the history of it but it basically fractured and fell apart because no one had any reason to get together they're like oh yeah we're gonna get together and say that we're atheists and then everyone would just look at each other like okay now what <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't form communities without that so religion has always played this prominent role of of giving societies a reason to exist in the first place and i think this is sort of um, you know, he, he makes a lot of assertions. I can't really prove, like, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to say that this guy is like 100% correct. He's, he's saying a, a lot of what his cumul cumulative wisdom has been. But one thing that you get from all of this work is some idea of how um, coalescing and how necessary religion is for that sort of society in the first place. Right. It's, it's a bonding element. It gives people common vision, common goal, something to rally around, common expectations. It uh, sets obligations. Obligations are very important. Obligations um, to deity, obligations to society, and sets out roles and structures. And, and, so and I, I can tell you that that's, that hasn't changed today. Like people don't, people don't, people have like, two things that they're loyal to let's say in modern america it's either you say some, you have some like sense of patriotism that you attach yourself to or you have some sort of religious zeal that you attach yourself to and you find your communities with that and when i say religious zeal i include things like the pro progressivist yeah the rainbow flag the, the rainbow official... flag is their religion in the first place it is so like that that hasn't changed it's the same idea it's just like you have to it re-expresses itself in different ways right you definitely uh with the rainbow flag you have all those elements you have ritual um how about uh using various pronouns that's part of the ritual or right. or using certain phrases and their terminology religiously loaded uh, words um lgbq whatever you, you must always determine who's the in group and the out group and, and purge the heretics punish blasphemers I, yeah. I, it follows very much the same patterns of religion but it, the reason it can be successful is because it it can act as a sort of unifying force for a large bunch of people it isn't it isn't terribly successful 
because most people tend to reject it. And the only reason it's successful in general is that uh, they they can they are very aggressive in pushing legislative penalties on people, both both like um, legal costs and um, well criminal charges. But it is a binding force, and it's it's just one of many examples. The church, like go go to any church today, like that tends to be the defining society that those people have. And the church is the principal society for most people who are in a given church it's how they understand themselves as a community and how they define themselves it, it's not very often that they, they have a, a and then the only other thing is like work work can define people but but most people find that a little bit humiliating i don't i don't know <laughs> you don't want your job to be the only thing that gives you purpose in life and it's a bit sad you see a lot of these people who like retire and then they just they realize that they have no purpose in life anymore and then they go back to work purely because they they can't you know function or else they, they die they go a bit crazy yeah so they have to go back to work just because they're they say they're too bored or something like that, but they, they really have no purpose in life outside of that. That's what one of the things religion does. All right. So uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we'll close there. Any questions or comments, put that down below on the YouTube uh, comment section or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page. Thank you for listening. And also thank John Fisher for being here today. Thanks for being with us. Thank you.